0: series on the novel Frankenstein and we thought it wouldn't be complete looking at Frankenstein for this year without spending some time on Halloween really diving into the pop culture of monsters and uh, the history of monsters and who else on campus could we possibly have invited except for Jason King to cover such a topic. So Jason is going to talk about the universal monsters, which in so many ways have consolidated our view of what a monster movie is, what a monster story is, and has really influenced um, the culture moving forward. So with that, thank you, Jason, for your time. And I'll turn it over to Jason. Thank you.
1: Noon everybody, ah, 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 to my very large audience, how's everybody doing today? Uh, I just had to take my, my cape off because I got this ginormous fat neck, and I'm going to choke myself. That would be a different kind of horror. Uh, my name is Jason King, it is a pleasure to be able to speak with everybody today. Uh, we're going to be talking about universal monsters and the creation of films in general. Here's kind of a roadmap of what we're going to be talking about today. I will be more than happy to take questions if we have time. I also have a bonus track on the history of zombies, which is kind of outside of the realm of universal monsters, but hey, why not, right? People like zombies. My first question is, why are we interested in horror? Why is horror something that interests us? In a way that's been pretty much, it's been around since at least the 1910s, 1920s, the beginnings of film in general in a way that other genres have kind of like gone away and come back, like musicals, for example. And I, of course, don't have any answers. I have more questions. But I can talk about David Cronenberg and what he thought about that. David Cronenberg, one of the great horror directors, uh, directed Videodrome, for example. He said, horror is about us reconciling the fact that we all have one thing in common, whether we're young, old, rich, poor, we're all going to die. And this is our way of reconciling our fact with the fact that we're going to die. This is from a movie called The Seventh Seal, where they're talking. And one of the guys is painting in the middle of a black plague. He says, why are you painting all these horrible, grotesque images on the side of a church? Nobody's going to look at that. And the painter says, oh, yeah, they'll look because a skull is more interesting than a naked woman. Our first ideas, as far as what horror is, come back all the way to the beginnings of, of history. Our first piece of recorded literature is the Epic of Gilgamesh. The story of Gilgamesh, his friend Enkidu, who dies, and then he tries to return him back to life. This is something that's in all sorts of things. Star Wars, for example. The idea of what creates Darth Vader is him trying, I hope I'm not spoiling this for anybody, but I figure it's been, what, 10, 20 years? You should have seen it by now. Uh, Darth Vader turns into Darth Vader because he wants the ability to bring somebody back from death. What more of a classic image can we have of this besides the vampire themselves? The idea of the vampire themselves is an idea of this, this creation that you think you're going to create immortality, but it's not what you signed up for. There's all sorts of images of this from the 19th century in English literature. There's Dorian Gray, for example the story of what happens to somebody when they don't age. They have a portrait. The portrait is what ages instead of the person, but in the process, he stops being human. He loses his humanity, if not his physical body. In Game of Thrones, Khaleesi wants to bring Karl Drogo back from the dead, and he does, but he's not him anymore. He's a person, but he's lost his persona. Or the idea of making devils deals with all sorts of different things. This is from Goethe and Faust. This is Robert Johnson cutting a deal with the devil in order to be a super great guitar player. Robert Johnson, we could talk all about blues and myths of the devil for a very long time if we wanted to. This idea that the monsters are not only within us, but well, outside of us, but within us as well, this is a common one that we might have. I'll show you a clip from a movie that kind of demonstrates this, that in a lot of ways, when we talk about horror, we talk about things that have relevance to ourselves. Uh, This is from a movie called The Monster Squad, one of my favorite horror movies for little kids. And there's all of these kids, and there's this scary German guy. That's what they call him, scary German guy who lives in the neighborhood. He's old. He keeps to himself. They don't see him that much. And they're walking by his house, and they're like, oh, scary German guy's inside. How do you say, please don't murder me in German? And he says, Sie uns, bitte, mörden Sie uns nicht? Because he's right behind him. Oh! and then they have a really good conversation. And the dude is totally a nice guy. And at the end, he even recognizes the fact that he's probably a little bit scary to them. Quite all right. But I am not, you know. If I were a vampire, then I wouldn't have a reflection. See? He has a reflection. Now, would I? Man, you sure know a lot about monsters. And you mention it. I suppose I do. He closes the door, and in something I didn't recognize when I saw this as a kid, you see the flash of a tattoo he has on his arm. That's numbers because he was very clearly in the Holocaust. So this is somebody that's saying, yeah, I know about monsters. I happen to see some that weren't there in real life. This thing again. There we go. So, let's talk about where the idea of universal monsters came from. We're going to go one by one. The first one is Dracula. So, we know people are interested in horror. Why are film studios interested in making horror movies? There's three big reasons. First one, is they're cheap to make. You can hide somebody that's an unknown actor behind makeup. A lot of times, dark lighting helps show that you don't have to have perfect things going on. Makeup is really cheap. Number two, they're really cheap to make. (laughs) And number three, they're really cheap to make. It's worth noting that these movies got their start in 1929. This is when Universal Studios puts their feet into the idea of making horror movies. You probably know what else happened in 1929. The Great Depression and Great Depression pinched all sorts of different industries, one of which was definitely big movies like this. They wanted to make movies, but they knew that having a really, really big budget blockbuster, if you didn't have the money for it, that could sink a studio. So What they decided to do is they played small ball. They said, all right, we're going to have movies that have very limited budgets, very limited budgets, and if we miss on one, that's okay, we didn't spend all our money. In addition, in doing this, they really monetized the idea of the formula in ways that they wouldn't have done otherwise. For example, this was the first genre that created sequels. So, Frankenstein creates Bride of Frankenstein when they run out of ideas. A movie that in my opinion is probably better than the original. In addition, this was at a time when talkies just began to be things that were around. So, movies that were talkies were good but they had one slight disadvantage. Previously, when movies were silent, you could have interstitial titles that were in all sorts of different languages. You could make them international. You could sell them in the US, you could sell them in Germany, you could sell them wherever. Subtitles really weren't possible during this time. So what they used to do is they would get an English-speaking cast to be in there in day, then at nighttime they would have a Spanish cast that would do the exact same movie. In my semi-humble opinion, The Spanish version of Dracula in 1931 is actually better than the original. This is kind of also when you get this idea that we see now today with kind of superhero movies, right? When there's this kind of superhero Marvel Cinematic Universe. This was what Marvel was, I'm sorry. This is what Universal Studios began to do in the process. They began to work their characters together to make kind of interesting things with this. Let's talk about Dracula. Dracula was a known product in 1931, they knew that it would sell. One of the big movies previously was 1919 and 1921's Nosferatu, a movie that was done in Germany. It was done as a silent movie. It was also kind of done semi-legally. Reason is, is that it was very clearly a ripoff of Bram Stoker's Dracula, but the people that made it didn't get the credits from them. So they kind of had to go around the fact that they had the rights that were not there. So. Instead of Dracula, it was Count Orlock, for example. Well, in 1929, Bram Stoker's estate gives the license to actually make a real Dracula movie. And to do it, they decided to do it in the formula they would do all these horror movies in. It had to be cheap, it had to be cheap, and it had to be cheap. They went with an actor who was known for doing Dracula on Broadway named Bella Lugosi. Guess why they got him? Because he was cheap. It was very cheap. And in the process of doing this, they discovered they really had a hit. Not as big of a hit as Frankenstein would be in the same year, but it made a lot of money for them, especially because it came from a low amount of capital that was required. To be dead, to be really dead, that must be glorious. Why? Count Dracula. There are far worse things awaiting man than death. Bel himself was no stranger to horror. Many of these original movies from the Universal Monsters came from veterans of World War I. This is a picture of him, the only one that I'm aware of, of him in his Austro-Hungarian uniform. Uh, He had at least three battle wounds that we know of, and he probably suffered from what would today be called PTSD. He was discharged from the army after about two years because of what they called combat exhaustion. Combat exhaustion is what today we would consider PTSD. He never really talked about it. None of them really ever talked about it. James Whale, one of the famous directors of Frankenstein, he never talked about it. Funny, we'll talk about that when we get to to Frankenstein. There's only one time that we know of that he did talk about it. When he was in the middle of filming something, he said that he was essentially a hangman for the Austro-Hungarian army an experience that he found both horrifying and thrilling at the same time. In a lot of ways, this is horror in general. To put into perspective how horrible World War I was as an experience, let me give you the casualty lists. These absolutely astound the imagination. This was at a time when firepower was very high, but armor was very, very short. Today, Most American soldiers, for example, in in war zones, typically wear plate armor. So this saves a lot of lives. They didn't have that back then. You can see the casualty rates. The French Empire, if you were drafted into World War I, you had a three-in-four chance of being killed or wounded. Serbia, you're wondering, how is that even possible? How can you have a casualty rate that's more than 100 percent? The only explanation I can have is soldiers out there were getting wounded, coming back, getting wounded again, going out again, and then getting killed. One quarter of the entire population of Serbia in total lost their lives in the war. We're not talking military, we're talking the whole country. Military, civilians, the old, the young, the kids. Following World War I, periods of Victorian mourning had to be changed. Victorian mourning customs were known for being very long, for being a way to transition one's life to, to give some idea that the person that you loved is gone. World War I didn't have those. World War I didn't have those because the person went off to war and then you never saw them again. And chances are you would never even be able to visit the place the person was buried if they were buried at all. So what happened during this period of the 20s, this is when seances became popular. It was a way of having people be able to mourn the fact that they lost people that they could never ever talk to again. If you're interested in this, there's a great book that just happens to be at the Moraine Valley Library, I found it on Hoopla, called Wasteland, The the Great War, The Origins of Modern Horror, shameless plug. Uh, You can see this in all sorts of ways. This is a room that they discovered. It was boarded off in somebody's house in France. There was a stipulation that when the person left and was killed in the war, they weren't allowed to touch the room. And to this day, this room remains untouched. Everything was as it was when they left for the war. But anyway, let's talk about the vampire. Bell Lugosi is so imprinted on us, the idea of what a vampire is. Anytime that we deviate from this trope, it feels strange somehow as though it's subverting the idea. Dracula himself, we don't know a whole lot about. This was not a period that was well-documented in history, but I'll give you a couple of ideas as far as what we know. We know that he drank blood. Well, at least that's what the stories tell. This was a time of sensationalistic journalism. This was at a time when it was more important to sell papers than it was to document the truth as it really was. We know that he impaled people. This we actually do know because there's documentation on it from the Turkish sources as well as the Romanian sources. His name in Romania is Vlad Sepish, Vlad the Impaler. We know he did some really daring nighttime raids against the Turks who were invading his territory. Other than that... We don't know a whole lot. We do know why the people that lived in his area thought that he was a vampire. Quiz yourself. What do you think? Why do you think the people thought that he was a vampire? A, B, C, or D? It's like a multiple choice test, right? And if you get it wrong, you fail the class. All the above, maybe? Let's find out. It's not because he said, I want to drink your blood, ah, ah, ah. Not because he lived a long life. He actually lived a very short life. I think I'm older than he was when he died. He also probably actually didn't dip his bread in blood. We're going to talk about why that is. It's because he converted from Orthodoxy to Roman Catholicism. He wanted to do that to gain favor with the Hungarian side to potentially build a bulwark against the Turks that were coming in. To do that, he had to marry a Hungarian princess. To do that, to marry the Hungarian princess, he had to convert... The Wallachian peasants that were in the area thought that that meant that he forsaked the truth. Forsook? Forsake? I don't know. Had forsaken, there we go, had forsaken the true faith and thus was condemned to live life as a vampire for the rest of his life. Here's the tale of the tape. He didn't really reign for that long. He had a very short period of reign when he was largely under the thumb of the Turks who were trying to take over the area. Comes back has Hungarian favor. This is when he converts. And then later on, he comes back for a very short time and is executed. The place that he was supposedly buried, they unearthed it, and he wasn't there. I don't know what that means. There's all sorts of horrible stories told about Dracula. This is a story about when Dracula was brought in front of Some different nobles, sometimes they're talked about from being the Holy Roman Empire, sometimes they're talked about from being the Turks. The story changes. These emissaries wouldn't take off their hats. Dracula found this incredibly rude, so he took a hammer, and nail, and he nailed them to their heads, thus killing them. There was a golden cup in his capital, Tergoviste. And in Tergoviste, this golden cup, this would have been 10, 20 times the annual salary of the typical peasant. Why wasn't it stolen? Well, because people were so terrified of Dracula that even though knowing that would set your family for life, nobody would dare do it because they know what would happen to them. There was another story about peasants that were living in a cottage. Dracula comes in and says, how can I help take away your burdens? The peasants say, if only you could take away our troubles, that would be great. And so Dracula puts them inside Locks it and then burns it down. Says, I'm taking away your troubles, right? You don't have a life anymore. Here's the problem with all these stories they were all also told about Ivan the Terrible. Each one of them was told about both. Here's the reason why. Both were really cruel to the German populace that lived around the area. In Romania, well, what would be today Romania? There were a lot of people called Transylvanian Saxons. These were German immigrants. They had printing presses. Dracula took some of their property, was mean to them, kicked them out. They told stories about him. They did the exact same thing about Ivan the Terrible. So it's very possible we know about the impalement. That's true. It's very possible he had nothing to do with dipping his bread in blood at all. That's something that nobody really talks about. Vampires themselves go back to at least the 15th century. We begin to get more reports of people being turned into vampires later on in, say, the 18th century. Here's a skeleton, and you'll notice that there's a scythe right over it. So if it arose from the dead, it would chop off their head. Most of the vampire stories, though, come from the Ottoman Empire, where there were dedicated vampire hunters around starting in the 15th century. So we believe that it was through kind of the the creation of Ottoman culture that went through the Balkans and through North. That's where the legend of the vampire really became a thing that took hold in Europe. But we're not sure. Later on, you can see that there were still people that were looking for vampires. This is from a 19th century lithograph in France. But really, it takes off when Bram Stoker creates the book Dracula. He didn't really have Count Dracula, Vlad Cepes the Impaler as a person in mind. He was reading a story about somebody called Count Vampire, and he was reading through some stuff about this creepy old guy, Vlad the Impaler. He was like, you know what? Why not just call him Count Dracula? Nothing else matches in the story. The actual Vlad the Impaler was in Wallachia. Uh, Count Dracula's in Transylvania in a totally different part of the Balkans. But yeah, it was a good story. The thing about vampires is they take on whatever they need to take on in history. Nosferatu, for example. Nosferatu, the story in 19, 1921, that era, is one about spreading the plague. And what's going on during this time in the world is the Spanish flu is happening. The Spanish flu, which happened just after World War I, killed more people than World War I. When we think about the pandemic, it was really the last pandemic that was truly global and that killed many, many people, many millions of people before. That was the last time in history something like that had happened. The plague spreading. So when Count Orlok spreads his evil, when he's drinking blood, he's also spreading the plague. He's creating the idea of the plague. 1931's Todd Browning is a little bit different. This was set during a time where America was isolationist, where it had withdrawn from the world stage, and where xenophobia was a common thought process. This was a time when to be Catholic meant to be un-American. This was a time when to be a foreigner or an immigrant meant to be un-American. And what's the first thing that Count Dracula does when he gets off the boat and shows up in England? He starts seducing all the English women. This was a general fear among people at the time, is that people that were not sharing our culture, our ways would come in and subvert our way of life. Frankenstein appears just at about the same time that Dracula does. They recruited veteran director James Whale. Interesting because he was the first director that I know of that was a large director who was also open about his sexuality. James Whale was gay. James Whale was also a veteran of World War I, saw a whole bunch of really terrible things. Funny enough, he found it easier to talk about the fact that he was gay than he did about any of his experiences in the war, which we were only able to find out after the fact. That's interesting. He recruits Boris Karloff, this kind of veteran character actor. and This was somebody that was kind of like a mid-star at the time. But again, you put somebody that's a mid-grade star in a whole bunch of makeup, it doesn't matter who they are, right? Very few horror movies are there because of who's in the in the chair. Who are you looking at? Frankenstein's an interesting person because you could find images of horror all around you at this time. Uh, the casualty rates you saw earlier, yeah, I'm not going to go all the way back there, but they were exceedingly high for most countries in Europe, and also, to some extent, for the United States. Relative to places like the Civil War, or the Boer War, or wars maybe as far back as the Crimean War, they did a much better job of keeping people alive that had been wounded grievously. However, that meant that somebody with a horrible face injury like this was somebody that would be living. This is after a prosthesis, you can tell, but still there's wounds that people would have been very, very familiar with. To the point that until very recently in France, there were signs up in their metro, in their subways, in their buses that said, some of the first people to get their picks are the grievous dead from, or not the, gr- the grievously wounded from the war. So these were people that were all around them. To see Frankenstein as being somebody that was horrifying was something that people in 1931 lived with very readily. Like I said before, James Whale never really talked about his experiences in the war, but if you look closely, you can see images from this. The idea of creating Frankenstein in 1931 was a shocking one. And Frankenstein, as far as, we, well, as, far as I know, was the first movie that was called a horror movie. This is where this term of a horror movie comes from. Before that, they weren't called that even though that's what they were. This was also a movie that was banned in a couple of theaters. This was a movie that uh, different newspapers wouldn't run ads for it. And so in the beginning they had to specifically say, this is a movie about a monster. This is not something that we want you to do. This is not something that we want you to be or see or believe we're telling you the story of somebody that has fallen. This is important because three years later, the Hays Code would come around. The Hays Code was essentially about making movies more moral. Then there's The Mummy. Many times in horror, the idea is that you wanna have a movie that's interesting and that's relevant to the people that are around it. Horror movies often depict what's going on around them. The mummy is nothing. It's, it, it's the exact same way, I guess. I saw this bumper sticker. I thought it was kind of funny. So I haven't watched it in a while. Was it good? I don't know. I, I recall it being kind of cheesy, but that was an earlier time in my life that I was like, oh, I'm a film snob. I can't have cheesy things in my life. I'd probably enjoy it now. That's about where my attention span is now. The beginning of the 20th century was really a time period when anything about ancient Egypt was really fascinating to people. Uh, Even today, southern Illinois is called Egypt, and you see cities like Cairo, not pronounced Cairo. If you go down there, the very few people that are left down there will, will correct you. There's Thebes. There's also Memphis in Tennessee. Memphis is named for the city in ancient Egypt. This is a time when architecture and art were really looking backward to ancient Egypt for inspiration. Art Deco has huge pieces of inspiration from ancient Egypt. One of the reasons for this is that this was when King Tut's tomb was discovered. Before that, there were always discoveries of mummies, but, well, there were discoveries of pyramids, they would unearth tombs and nothing would be in there. Grave robbers got to them first. Tutankhamun was the first one that they had discovered that was basically intact. Along with this was the curse of the Pharaoh. The person that organized the expedition, Lord Carnarvon, he was there in the background, I think that's supposed to be him, got a mosquito bite in his way there, got it infected, died a couple of weeks afterward. Some of the people that opened this up, they died a couple of weeks afterward. The story was that there was a curse put on this, that whoever opened up the tomb would be cursed with death. One problem with the story is there actually is no curse there. (laughs) Later, we were able to read the hieroglyphics, nothing about a curse there at all. But the story, the mystique of it, remained. The idea of the mummy walking around is something that ancient Egyptians would have no concept of. They knew that this was a body that they had taken out all the organs and it had fulfilled its purpose. The idea of spiritually, this mummy was the physical shell that remained. The body would move on to the afterlife. The idea that it would be shambling around or moving around was basically anathema to them. There's one small parchment called the Book of Thoth that refers to it shortly, but it was an uncommon way to look at things. The story of the mummy itself is one that you'll see from before and from after. The mummy is about somebody that fell in love with with somebody during their time. They come back, they're resurrected, and now they're looking for their lost love in all sorts of different places, even though they've been dead thousands of years. Eventually, the mummy dresses up like somebody that's contemporary from the time, sees somebody that they think is the reincarnation of that person, and I'm not going to spoil it. I guess it's, what, 80, 90 years old at this point? I probably can spoil it, but it's a good movie. You should watch it. What's important about this is This is from the movie, Metropolis, which is essentially the same thing. It's about a mad scientist who creates a robot after his dead daughter. It's essentially the same story other than that. The daughter comes back, does things that are not expected. I can't help but wonder if there's shades of this in our current age. AI is a scary thing for a lot of people. One of the things that AI is starting to be able to do is it's starting to be able to recreate with only very small snippets of information, the voice patterns and the voice speech of lost loved ones. What this means is at some point, probably in the near future, you might be able to ask somebody that's loved around you from near you what they would think about a topic. AI can recreate their thought process and it can also create their voice. Scary stuff, right? But in a way, rebuilding the idea of immortality in and of itself. Around this time is when the heat starts to get put on horror movies. These were movies that were making a lot of money at the time, and with that came a little bit of extra scrutiny. Frankenstein, for example, made on a budget of $300,000. He had a domestic take of 12 million. So what's that, a 3,600% profit? These were movies that were made cheaply. If you got one that made a ton of money, that could potentially save the entire company. This is still basically true with horror movies in general. The good ones are always ones that are low budget. Invisible Man is at a time when the Hays Code, this idea that movies couldn't be gory, they had to have an uplifting message, began to take place. You can see it beginning to be thought of in The Invisible Man. The Invisible Man is somebody that's, well, you can probably tell. They're invisible, right? You can't see them. What does this mean, though? And to talk about the meaning of the invisible man and what kind of a person they are, we have to go back a long time. You probably know where this is from. This is from the Lord of the Rings, right? There's this ring in the Lord of the Rings. It's called the One Ring. What happens when you put on the One Ring? You do two things. Number one, you turn invisible, which is pretty cool. And number two, it turns you evil, over time. Think about Gollum or Smeagol. This comes to us from ancient Greek philosophical discussions. One of them is from Plato and the idea of the ring of Gyges. I'm just going to take a drink of water real fast. The idea was, are people basically good or basically evil? And today we still don't have an answer for this. I think it's personally, a, a, in math we would call this not a well-ordered question. What does it mean to be good or what does it mean to be evil? Plato, however, said, I think people are basically evil, and here's why. Imagine there was a ring. There's a ring you can put on your finger, and when you do this, nobody can see you. You have no way of showing who you are in any of your interactions with the world around you. How would that change you? How would that make you different than who you are today, knowing that all the actions that were good, you would get neither praise nor punishment for anything you did. Would you still work, knowing that you could just go into a bank and just take all the money you wanted to? Would you do anything that would be invisible and poorly reflective of you if they could see you? And Plato's idea was yes, yes. If the ability to turn invisible was something you could do probably nobody would work, probably everybody would do really, really evil things because the consequences would no longer be there for their actions. This is really the moral of the story of the Invisible Man. The Invisible Man is somebody that began, had an accidental scientific experiment, and as time goes on, they become super-duper evil. This is horror, but it's on a different level of horror. This is not the blood and guts type of horror. This is a philosophical idea of horror. This is a philosophical dimension on it. And then there's the Wolfman. The Wolfman is done post-code. And so this is really when some of these tropes begin to be more popularized. The idea of the scream that you can't see off camera, the, oh, and then they go into the room and something's happened, but you don't actually see what it was. This is the idea of the Wolfman. The Wolfman also has this very, very clear, specific moral code going on. The idea of the Wolfman, though, comes to us from Long, long ago. Um, this is from a lekythos. This is from a kind of like a water pitcher, and this is somebody that's turning into a wolf, half man, half wolf, donning the wolf skin to potentially give them superpowers. In the U.S. in the 17th century, we had a lot of witch trials, like for example in Salem, the most commonly well-known ones, um, from. An anthropologist standpoint, anthropologists are very clear to talk about emic and etic. There are reasons that people say they're doing things, and then maybe there's some stuff behind the surface as far as why they're doing things. Um, What an anthropologist might say is it just so happens that in the 17th century, everybody that was accused of being a witch happened to be very wealthy, and they were usually accused by people that were poor. And when you were accused of being a witch and found guilty, all of your stuff was taken. So, there's a little bit of a, you know, there's some extrinsic motivation there, right? In Europe, they didn't have as many witch trials, but they had werewolf trials. They said, this person is a werewolf. I know because I saw them prancing around in the moonlight and eating animals and stuff like that. Well, how can you prove it? Well, I can't prove it. I I know what I saw though. And again, it just so happened the people that were accused were rich, and that they often had accusers that were not rich. This was a way of essentially doing wealth redistribution. The Wolfman is very clear on what it means. This is a quote from the Wolfman. The legend of the Wolfman is an instant explanation of the dual personality each of us, even a man who is pure in heart and says his prayers by night may become a wolf when the wolfbane blooms and autumn moon is bright. This is a way of saying, this is something that we also see in Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, that every person has kind of a shadow self. They have a good version, they have a good version of themselves, and then kind of a dark side of the force, if you will. The part of themselves that is one that is not contained by reason, that is not contained by logic. It's the one that's kind of a more more evil side of oneself. This is Lon Chaney under all that makeup, right? The Wolfman is kind of the late, it's the last classic one from 1941. For a whole bunch of different reasons, tastes began to change in the 40s, away from kind of the universal monsters. One big thing was World War I. People weren't looking for scary anymore, they were looking for uplifting, something that would take their mind off of these horrible troubles. Another one is like any other industry, it began to get changed as prices went up on everything. You got unknown actors, but eventually the unknown actors you got became known and then their, their value went up and they were more difficult to find. That being said, Universal came up with a whole bunch of different clever ways to maintain focus on these. One of these was in turning into comedy horror movies. Abbott and Costello, for example, taking two well-known comedians, they might meet characters from horror. There was Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, Abbott and Costello meet the Wolfman. I believe there's Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein and the Wolfman. So, they're all pretty good, they they maintain themselves pretty well. But, what really changes is in the 1950s, one of the last kind of used in universal horror movies is The Creature from the Black Lagoon, which brings into a new idea of science fiction. In the 50s, science fiction really began to take hold over horror. All sorts of different reasons why. The emphasis on science was there in education. Sputnik was in the air, so no longer could you think about horror as being something biological, but it was also scientific now. It was right above us when the Soviets were looking at us from this little teeny satellite that went beep, beep, beep. So Creature from the Black Lagoon is really kind of this this meshing of science fiction with horror. They do all kinds of really interesting, clever things in this to make this work pretty darn well. So one of the things that they did is with some of the camera angles that they used, it essentially became very good for a 3D movie. So later on in the 80s, I remember watching Sven Gulli, they would actually show it in 3D, everybody got their glasses. Ah, the 80s, that was a wild time, kind of aging myself. Any questions before I move into the bonus track? There's a lot of people here. I'm expecting somebody. No? Okay. Let's talk about zombies. Vampires we talked about with regard to the way that Ottoman Turkish notions of theology move through the world. As as Ottoman Turkish culture spread, so did the vampire culture spread as well. Zombies couldn't be explained without talking about where zombies come from. This is a map of the African slave trade. The slave trade that began in 14, well, the late 15th century and went all the way through the late 19th century and in places like Mauritania continued to exist into the 20th century. One of the things you note is that Many slaves came from West Africa, but they came from all over West Africa. These were people that were disparate as far as language, culture, religion, all sorts of different beliefs. And most of them ended up not in the United States, but in the Caribbean. And to some extent into Brazil as well. There were different reasons for this, one of which was until about the 19th century, the Caribbean was a wealthier place than the United States was. Um, in the American War of Independence, for example, one of the reasons that America won is that Britain was more focused on the islands down here than it was about gaining territory in North America, which was always a money-losing enterprise for them. So, in 1780, most slaves in the world, the plurality of them could be found in the western portion of this island of Hispaniola, at the time known as San Dominique. Today, we would call it Haiti. Today's still one of the most challenging places to talk about when it comes to economic development. Something like 80 to 90% of the population here were enslaved. It's possible that there were more slaves here than any place else on the planet at the time. These were people that were brought here that couldn't talk with each other. They spoke different languages. So as a result, they, created kind of a, a syncretic view of religion called voodoo. Voodoo is similar to voodoo. It became known as voodoo later on, but at this point, there's this idea of voodoo. There's two pieces of the soul in voodoo. There's tibonage, which is kind of what makes you, you. It's your thoughts, your ideas, your beliefs, your, your, your persona, I guess. Person and persona. And then there's the grobanage, which is your physical body, your ability to move. If I tell my arm to move, it moves. Can you think of why maybe somebody that was living in bondage, in slavery, might want to separate pieces of their soul from pieces that they were forced to do and pieces that remained theirs no matter what happened to them? It's pretty clear as far as why, right? This is the piece of the soul maybe that can be taken over this is the piece of the soul that no matter what, no matter how bad the material conditions are, this is what they can be a part of. In the process, there were people called bakor who were known as people that could essentially exercise that portion of the tibonage out of the body and could turn you into somebody that was no longer a person with free will, with consciousness, with personage, and could turn you into just the person that was grobonage, that could only be moved around This was the idea in African voodoo of the zombie. This was somebody that was still alive. They would still eat, they would still do things, but their persona had been taken away from them. This would probably be something only that happened in Haiti if it wasn't for events in history that would change this. Haiti was a place where slavery was, like I said before, it was ubiquitous. You could find it everywhere. And in 1803, the second rebellion after the American War of Independence, Haiti had its own War of Independence, and they were successful. What this meant is that the French that were there, if they were able to get out in time, took their slaves, and they migrated back to the southern half of the United States. They decided that even if they couldn't be that way, they could at least live there. From there, you get to a different kind of zombie. Zombies in film began with the movie called J'accuse. This is a reminder of World War One. J'accuse is a fascinating movie. It was made during World War I. It was essentially about the story of the French people forgetting the sacrifices that the French soldiers made in the war. And I can probably show a little clip of it. This is from the movie itself. It's silent, so I don't need to. Oh, that's right. Uh, maybe I maybe I won't. <laughs> I forgot all that stuff. But oh, let's try escape. There we go. Essentially, what happens is the dead that were there rose from their graves to accuse the French people of forgetting the sacrifice. That's what j'accuse means, it means I accuse. What was interesting about the film itself is this was shot with soldiers that were on leave during World War I. Very shortly thereafter, they went off to the Nivelle Offensive where about 60% of them were killed. So the people that would be seen in this as rising from the dead, in a couple of short weeks afterwards, they would be dead themselves. Zombies even today shine this light on the aspects of our culture that maybe we don't think of. This is what horror always does for us. It's always something that talks about the parts of our culture that it's difficult to talk about directly, but we can talk about them indirectly. Science fiction is also very good at this. This is from Shaun of the Dead. You can see that this is pre-zombie world where there's Shaun. He's surrounded by people who are looking... kind of not exactly there, the nine to five job drains them, I guess. And this is after the zombies take over and everyone's living in harmony with them. You can see no real difference, right? They're trying to say something about the nature of work. The movie Warm Bodies is all about what does it mean to have a zombie boyfriend or a zombie girlfriend? I would not recommend seeing this movie because it's awful, but it's called Zombie Lake. This is a movie about Nazis rising from this lake in France to come back. What's interesting is this guy right here has a daughter with somebody that's in the town. A zombie with a daughter in the town? This is talking about France after World War II with the nature of collaborationists. So France, for example, was one of the countries that very quickly surrendered to the Nazis in World War II, and afterwards did what they asked, basically. Not to the extent that some other countries did, but they were very, very willing partners for the most part in doing what the Nazis asked of them. Them coming out is a way of saying that they've got some, some skeletons in their closet, right? That France still, to this day, is continuing to deal with what does it mean to be a collaborationist, to be abetting and obeying forces of evil that are all around them. (laughs) One of my favorite zombie movies is Dawn of the Dead. The original George Romero one, although the remake isn't bad too. Zombies are going where they used to go in life. And so this group of survivors that are trying to flee from the zombies, they end up going to a mall and they're like, why are all these zombies at the mall? And Ken Faree says, well, this is what they did in life. They're just recreating what they did. And what they discover is when these survivors are holed up in the mall, they become consumers. They themselves become just like shoppers in this mall. They get soft. And then when a group of raiders comes in trying to take their stuff, they don't do what they would have done before, which is leave the mall, go somewhere else. They say, this is ours. This is our mall. They fight for it with disastrous consequences at the end. And that's what I have. I didn't think 89 slides would go that quickly, but here we are. Does anybody have any questions, any comments, any thoughts? I overheard you say earlier that vampires were like related to the Ottoman Empire. Yes. I kind of was like I that's the only thing like I overheard. Maybe we like go into that a little bit more because I kind of was like distracted something else. Sure. Um, The question was, vampires are related to the Ottoman Empire. The idea of the vampire, the idea that somebody is rising from after their death to come and haunt the living is one that you can find in a couple of different cultures around the world. Um, There were Taoist hopping vampires, for example, that would come around. But where we think of as far as people that would rise from the dead after they were dead, that would drink blood, that comes to us from the Ottoman Empire. The earliest examples that we have of that are from the 15th century. What the thing is about the Ottoman Empire is, where can I find that slide? Here. Of course, there we go. Ottoman culture spread pretty rapidly through Europe. So pieces of Ottoman culture spread throughout the Balkans, especially where they gained territory but also into Western Europe itself. And this is something that it took a couple of hundred years to become a part of European culture. But yeah, the idea of the vampire culture was something that was brought to Europe by the Ottomans. Some of the first recognized instances we have of dedicated vampire hunters. For example, this is a vampire hunter. This is from the Ottomans. So there were people whose jobs, they they were religious officials. They would look around for vampires the way that, say, for example, the Catholic Church might have exorcists, I guess. People that would exercise, not like jumping jacks, but pulling demons out of bodies and stuff like this. So yeah, this part of culture, of the vampire culture, comes to us from the Ottomans. It is. That's pretty neat. That's where the guitar comes from, too. The guitar, uh, so the guitar is originally from the oud, which goes into Europe, becomes the lute, the lute becomes the guitar. So lots of cool things. I don't know why I just thought of that. Any other questions?
0: Can I, I, wanna, I don't know if I have a good question or not, but I, maybe you could help me find my question in this. The, to go back to the Universal Monsters, it seems interesting that there's this kind of collection of unrelated stories, like we think of them today, as being related because I think largely of the of the universal horror movies, right? right? Frankenstein written in you know 1801, 18, whatever it was, 19 or 1819, maybe? 1818.
1: And oh then, Mary Shelley's?
0: Yeah, Mary Shelley's yeah. Frankenstein, right? The novel. And then um, Dracula at the end, hundred almost a hundred years later. And then um, Wolfman from ancient stories, and they become kind of jumbled together into this strange universe. And I don't know if that's a if it's a commentary on what pop culture does, or if it's, I, again, that's where I don't know if I know my what my question actually is, but it, I always found it this strange conglomeration, and now in our minds, we think of them as a family of monsters, this, this shared universe, like like you said, like the Marvel Cinematic Universe, mm-hmm. but they're not really connected at all, right? We just found this way to pull them together, <laughs> and they've kind of lived on beyond even the original. Like, we know Frankenstein, we know Dracula, in People haven't read the original books, and some, a lot of us, even haven't even seen the original movies. Right, um, but they stay alive and stay related to each other. So I think that's maybe that's just a comment. I think it's an interesting conglomeration, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on that.
1: I, I think where the connections might be is that a lot of these are people that their humans are separated from their humanity. For an example, Frankenstein. Frankenstein is not human. He is a construct. He's created from all sorts of different pieces together. But in a lot of ways, he's more human. He is more of a humanity than Dr. Frankenstein, the person that's creating them. Dracula, for an example. Dracula is somebody that he's charming, he's elegant, he's rich, he's an aristocrat essentially. But deep down, he's a monster. right? He looks human in all different ways possible. But when you get down to it, this dude is clearly very much a monster. So in a way, maybe it's trying to talk about the fact that what it means to be human is not necessarily that you have flesh and blood. It's about maybe your code of morality. It's about shared experiences. Maybe it's about suffering or loss or growth or something like that. Maybe that's a part of it. I think that Maybe in that way, the Wolfman is the most interesting because the Wolfman... Ooh, that's far. The Wolfman is the one that is most clearly representing that duality, is that he is both very human, he's a person that's in the movie, he's very tender, he's very kind, he's very aware that he hurts people. But then there's also the Wolfman himself, the person that does not care whatsoever about any of that. So, I, I think maybe, is that kind of? Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, the invisible man, yeah, it's, I don't know, because the invisible man doesn't become what he is until that thing happens to them. Maybe in a way that's also a way of saying, we don't really know ourselves that well, right? I think I know I'm a good person, but I find this ring of gaijis and I put it around, would I be the same person I was before? I don't know. I'm probably never going to happen to me, so... But interesting thought experiment, I guess.
0: Love it. Any uh,
1: other questions? Any other questions? <laughs> All wow. right. I can't tell if somebody in, in row 700 back there has a question. I can't <laughs> tell. It doesn't look like they have their hand up, though.
0: All right. Thank you. Thank you, Jason.
1: Thank you so much, everybody. Happy Halloween. Well, oh, thank you.